I love working with color. I love working in black and white. Sometimes I wish I could pick more of like one to fit into, Mm. but then I, I long for the other ones. I miss them. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these easy-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix a motion or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you are ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screen Kit for the most affordable way to get the materials you need to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Valerie Saipos. We talk about Valerie's multi-continent print journey, the food culture of Tokyo, Japan, the use of portraiture to explore people's inner worlds, and should any of us be drinking Coca-Cola after watching Kitchen Litho? So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to find our place in the kitchen with Valerie Saipos. Hi, Valerie. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. It's good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so pleased to get a chance to speak with you because I, I've i known your work really since the early days of my interacting with contemporary printmaking through Davidson. And of course, then through the magic of social media, got to follow you in a bit your travels around the world. I think you were in Japan when we first connected. I was insanely jealous of someone being able to live in Japan and do print. And so it feels like a wonderful long time coming to actually have a face-to-face chat and learn more about you and your work. So thank you for joining me. Yes. Thank you. It's really an honor to be speaking with you. And yes, we have sort of connected, but not connected for quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. So before we get into my questions and your story, would you please let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Valerie Saipos. I am currently in Germany, although I will soon be based out of Rhode Island, and I am a printmaker and artist. Wonderful. And so where did you grow up and what role did art have in that part of your life? I'm originally from Ottawa, Canada. That's where I grew up. And art for me as a child was something that I connected with a lot in books at first. So my grandma was really into painting, which is something Mm -hmm. she got into in the latter half of her life. And she collected a lot of art books. And some of those books ended up at my parents' house. And I spent a lot of time just looking through the books and looking through the pictures. And that really had a strong impression on me as a kid. Do you remember anything particularly from the books? Was it Renaissance paintings? Was it any prints or just was it kind of this luscious world of images? A lot of it was a luscious world of images, but I do 
strongly recall the Odilon Redon, who of course did a lot of lithography as well as paintings, and definitely some Goya, which of course, mm, yeah. I could see Goya definitely leaving an impression on a child, yes. <laughs> a lot of uh, blood and gore and all that good stuff, at least that I loved as yes. a kid. Yes. Yeah. And then what about art making for yourself? When did you first start creating images or creating crafts? I think really as long as I can remember. It was just my favorite subject in school and one of my hobbies at home. So I was really into arts and crafts just as making things from a very young age. And I was lucky enough to be able to go to a specialized arts high school in Ottawa. And that's when I really got focused into visual art in my teens. Yeah. And is that where you first found printmaking? Yes. Yes, it is. A little bit. We did lino cut and we did some intaglio printmaking. And although I really felt a connection with it right away, when I went to art school, I actually went into painting because I had this idea that painting was somehow a more valid art form, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, what I learned from art history textbooks at the time. But when I went into university for painting, I realized that it really was printmaking that I loved. So, Oh, yeah. I feel like, yeah, you, you definitely, I'm sure, picked up on that thing in the air, you know, that there's just these hierarchies within the art world that are yeah. just unspoken. But you, you see it. Like you say, you see in textbooks, you're going to see Goya's paintings over his prints, even though personally I prefer the prints. I mean, no – no no shame on Saturn eating his children, but it's like the, the disasters of war has just such a huge place in my heart. So yeah, I definitely understand that for sure. Yeah. And so when you were in college, where, where was that? And, and what was that period like in terms of forming your artistic voice? I went to Concordia University in Montreal. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And When I was, so as I said, I was studying painting and drawing and I just wasn't really happy. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to take a print class. And I started with intaglio and then I moved on to lithography and screen print. And I really took all the classes that I could. And I just wanted to learn as much as I could in that time. And so when I graduated, I knew that I loved printmaking, but I hadn't really formed like an idea of exactly what I wanted to make as an Mm. artist. So I sort of had the beginnings of that. And at least I knew the materials I wanted to use, but I didn't really know exactly what my style was or what my voice was at that point. And I just wanted to study more. What do you think it was about printmaking that grabbed your attention? And it sounds like really didn't matter what form it took, like you were there for it. <laughs> yes. I think it's it's the combination of the technical, like the craftsmanship and the artistic side. I just really like working both of those together. And I love this sort of indirect approach where you do have to work through something before you create the final product. And as well, working with layers. I've always been the kind of person who doesn't do a one layer print. I'm generally doing multiple layers, adding colors on top of each other. And that has always just really been something I love doing. Yeah. I mean, as you're saying how you were drawn to 
all the different media under the umbrella, I feel like that still stands out in your work. You know, if you go to your website and you see your portfolio, I think it's unusual to see an artist who's done such a deep dive on litho and such a deep dive on wood engraving. And you really do seem to have carried that interest in the different mark making of each practice into what you're still doing. Like you never picked a lane. You were like, I'm here for all of it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And that makes things fun, but it can also Mm -hmm. make things challenging when you're trying to put together a body of work. You know, I feel like there's something, there can be something really good about picking one lane and just really sticking to that. But it's also so much fun to try all these other different things. So. Yeah, absolutely. Because I was really curious when you're saying you sort of graduated and then you didn't know your voice. And I feel like that's such an interesting time in an artist's story. Because I would say that from an outsider looking in that you you have a voice now, like you have work that even if you didn't have your name attached to it, I would know that it was your work, which is my sort of definition in my own head of an artist with a voice. So what was that journey for you to sort of finding, okay, I'm interested in portraiture. I'm interested in these sort of Russian doll faces. And of course, the incorporation of food in this really playful way, which is in some of the the work I first saw from you. When did you come to that point where you thought, okay, like now I kind of know what I want to say. And and how was that journey to get there? Hmm, that's like a very small question, tiny question. I know. (laughs) Well, I think what definitely helped was the year after I graduated under undergraduate. So when I did my BFA that, that next year I took off and uh, I had a couple of really great experiences. One of them was I got to do an artist in residence program in Sweden. Wonderful. And that was kind of like my first time as an artist out on my own. And so it was really eye opening. And I feel like Maybe I didn't create the best work during that residency, but I learned so much just about myself and and sort of being myself. And then I took that back to Canada and I was a member at a printmaking studio there called Atelier Circulaire in Montreal. And so being a member and being around all of the printmakers who were working there was just really helpful just to see how people approach their own artwork and how they were thinking about art. And it just made me start thinking about art, I guess, in a different way than before where it had just been, oh, this is a project I have to make for a class. Whereas now it was really like, okay, well, this is my stuff and I get to decide what I want to do and what I want to create. So that, that year definitely helped me sort of figure things out. Yeah, I'm thinking that that is such a huge distinction from some kind of bounds that are usually put on image making in any instructive setting to being out in the world and all of a sudden saying, okay, you can do anything. (laughs) Then you're like, oh, no, I can do anything now. (laughs) Yeah. And so at what point did you get the Japanese government scholarship and moved to Tokyo, which is where you were when we first connected. Yeah. So during that year and a bit that I had off, I was sort of thinking in the back of my mind that I wanted to do a master's program, but I didn't know exactly where I wanted to go. I just thought I want to study outside of Canada. 
And it just so happened that someone I knew had got a scholarship, a Japanese government scholarship, and they told me about it. And I thought, well, I'm going to apply. And as luck would have it, I got accepted. And in 2010, I moved to Tokyo to go study at Tokyo University of the Arts. So it was, I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but it was also definitely luck, I think. Mm, oh, I think that particularly, I think as a printmaker, yes. it's hard not to just be completely enraptured with the visual culture, both historically and, and contemporarily in, in Japan. And so had you had an interest in Japan? Had you studied the language before that? I had an interest in some Japanese art, especially, of course, POA, woodblock printing. And also, I had seen an exhibition of the artist Eda, and his work mm -hmm. just really spoke to me, and I really liked it. And that was one of the reasons that when I heard of that scholarship, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to go for it. And when I decided, okay, I'm going to go for it, I decided, okay, I'm going to go all in. And I started taking Japanese lessons, and I really put in a lot, a lot of effort to get to a very basic level by the time I moved there. And when I arrived, the first six months before studying printmaking was at another university doing Japanese language studies. So oh, cool. all of that prepared me for going to the university in Japanese, or at least it, it didn't totally prepare me, but it gave me, it definitely helped. It gave you a fighting chance, yes. it sounds like, yeah. And so that, that six months that you were studying, was that built into the scholarship or was that something that you had to sort of arrange yourself? No, that's, that was built into the scholarship. Oh, very, so cool. Part, very cool. Part of the application, you had to do a Japanese language test. And if you're, you were below a certain level, then you had to do the six months of language learning, of mm. course, which was most people. But, you know, there'd be some people who would be fluent and then they would be able to skip that and go straight to whatever studies they were doing. When people choose to put themselves in that experience, and I have done it myself a few times, it can be such a growing and lonely and scary and exciting and filled with moments, at least for me, speaking from the eye of where you are lying in your bed at night thinking, what have I done? And then the next day you could say, how could I be doing anything else? I don't know. Like, was it, was it that kind of a roller coaster for you? Yes. All of those things. <laughs> you know, there, there was the most difficult of times and there was just the most amazing of times. There were times where I thought, I, I don't know how I could make art. And there were other times where I was just so inspired. I just had a million ideas. So it was definitely a roller coaster like that. Yeah. Yeah. And is this when food started appearing in your work? I know when I first saw your practice, you you had these compositions that sometimes it looked like you was maybe ramen or something, you know. And having spent time in Tokyo, and I did a I did a study abroad in Japan in high school in a teeny tiny town. It was so small; it's since been like incorporated into the re the more recent town. It doesn't even exist anymore. But having been in the city in Tokyo. The food culture there, of course, is 
amazing and also seems so omnipresent. Like you walk by shops and they have that plastic food out front that says to entice you in or you see the sushi on a on a oh, what do you call that the rotating sushi the the sushi carousels going by and so it always food in particularly like that experience of going and communally eating in a restaurant felt so present in Tokyo and was that an influence on how it kind of found its way into your work do you think Yes, definitely. I had been doing some work that incorporated food imagery before, but when I moved to Japan because it was so omnipresent, it really interested me. And it just interested me in a visual way, but also in the way that food when you think of still lives, it can be something that very much represents a mm. culture or a time or something. So I just found that a really interesting topic to explore at that time and it also was interesting to to make me think about how food culture is so different but can be similar at the same time in just this this idea of like what we eat how we eat how that's so connected with the cultures and how that can be Mm -hmm. so different but also in today's world how it's kind of becoming the same everywhere those are those are the things that I was thinking about But also for Japanese food, it's just something that is so beautiful at times. And there's also different ideas. I was thinking like the idea of shokkan, like the texture of food. And that's not something I had ever really thought about as much before going there where it is so important. And so in those lithos that I was making at the time, I was trying to get that idea of shokkan, like the texture of food into the texture of my drawing. So I was trying to sort of recreate that in those drawings, if that makes sense. Yeah. that's There's so much in what you just said, and it, that's really interesting. And I think that idea of, you know, the universal and the specific in food cultures is something I found because, of course, there's that everybody's got to eat thing. So it's, it's a fundamental – it's the way that humans – keep ourselves alive. And so every culture has to have a food culture of some kind. And the way people experience it and then socially, but then also formally, as you say, in terms of paying more attention to texture or the umami flavor, which I think a lot of people think about is this, is that once you're introduced to it, you do realize that you were missing a word for that experience with food and that sort of thing. And so it can, it can open up universal human experiences through the specifics of a food culture. It's one of the most fundamental ways we connect to the world because we are literally eating the world. We're eating the plants of the world, the animals of the world, and putting it inside of us. We're stealing life from something else that's been alive. <laughs> and so it's just, yeah, and and some of the most profound cross-cultural social experiences I've had have been across dinner tables, breaking bread with people. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things you talk about is in your work exploring the experience of the city dweller and the interaction or lack thereof of with each other and the environment. And I really connected with that as someone who's – I've lived in Bangkok and Sydney. I've lived in these 
huge places where you seems to me the experience is you're so close and so far away at the same time from everyone. And I'd love to hear you just sort of speak to the ways in which that metropolitan experience shows up for you in your work. Yeah. So it hasn't for a few years because I haven't been in one of those big metropolises. But when I was living in Tokyo and then after also in Seoul, it definitely did have an effect on my work. And it's interesting how places like that can be the loneliest place in the world Mm -hmm. at times where you're never far from anyone, where there's someone right there all the time, but it can just be so incredibly isolating. And I find that really interesting. There's, there's something about that, how you it's can be so hard to connect. There's also something to say about technology as well, which I have sort of thought about, you know, technology has made us closer and further at the same time. And that's something that's also sort of I has interested me in past and I've explored in past works. Mm. There's kind of this sort of two sides to things that I do find quite fascinating, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in in really densely populated cities too, I think like like Tokyo and and Seoul and and Bangkok, it can be almost, I think, a survival mechanism, like a psychological survival mechanism to ignore the closeness of people. And I think that that sort of saves you. And then as you say, also can plant these seeds of loneliness. Because if you really were energetically open to every person on the subway or every person in your apartment complex, it would be complete sensory overload. There's just so much human. It's so much story. It's so much emotion. And so there is a kind of force field that I think everybody gets that maybe contributes to what you're talking about of the the loneliness and the closeness at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to talk too about particularly your use of portraiture. And that's a theme as well. And so you know, if there are definitely self-portraits for sure. When did the human form first start appearing in your work? That is something that I have been interested in forever. I've always been interested in the human form. And it was very prevalent in my early works, more in terms of self-portraits. And it is something that I have sort of gone back to in the past, let's say, five years. When I was working with images of food or metropolises as my theme, I was doing a lot of what I would say research for my work. Not real research, but a lot of thinking and planning and and sort of so many different sketches went into making a work to say what I wanted to say about that specific thing. Whereas with the human form, I'm working more intuitively, more with mm. feelings and more without not without a plan, I would say, but without that sort of research, so so-called research mm-hmm. that I used to work into my prints. And a lot of the reason for that is also time. So I am a primary caregiver to two young children. Mm-hmm. And that combined with my art practice has forced me to completely 
change the way I think about making art. There's no way that I could continue with the same way that I was doing before. So because of that change, one of the things that I had to do was switch to working quicker in a way of how I create my images. So it just seemed to fit more naturally with working with the human form. And that's one of the reasons why I went back to a lot more of faces and bodies, because it worked with this sort of intuitive way of starting from a life drawing session and then doing some sketches and finding something that I liked without having to spend all that time with the research or, or sort of with the thinking through exactly what I want to say with it. So that is a large part of why I'm working with the form, human form now. Yeah. And I would imagine too, the, especially if you're working in self-portrait, there's an immediacy of subject matter. Oh, yeah. you know, where you're right there. Whereas if you, if you want to make a complex drawing of a, of a bowl of ramen, you're, there's something, there's a going and a gettingness that is involved in that, but you're, you're always with yourself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so in terms of what you're working on now, using more of the human form, can you speak to some of the ideas that you're exploring and how that's showing up in your work? Yeah, I'm interested in the sort of the internal workings of people and sort of what's hiding behind. A lot of my Mm -hmm. work has to do with this sort of maybe the self that you put out into the world versus the self that's really in there. And that's something Mm -hmm. that has interested me. So I think I do often have these sort of layers and these masks. And it's about sort of this different layers of yourself that you might be presenting. And that's something that over the past few years has really interested me in my work. It sounds like you're maybe speaking particularly from your personal experience of you feel like you have the layers and the masks as you as you go about the world, as we all do. But is it particularly interested in Valerie's experience no. with the layering? No. Or just our not. universal experience? It's a universal experience. Mm-hmm. And especially also recently, I'm trying to use less and less self-portraits. Mm. compared to when I was younger. So it's not really my experience, but I do feel like I have a connection to a lot of the images that I have. And I feel like a lot of people do, you know, Mm -hmm. who who doesn't have this sort of external self that they project to the world different than this internalized self that they keep just for themselves. Mm. Mm -hmm. And just kind of my own mind is going to the experience of, of living abroad as well and how I would so easily pick up the culture that I was living in. So mannerisms, little ways of being polite. I've noticed how every culture has a different way of showing that they're listening when someone's talking. It was almost like I would, my person suit would change. Of course, the internal core is still the same, but I don't know if that has been your experience at all either in in your world travels, but yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. When you you try and fit in somewhere, you do have to change the way that you're presenting yourself so that you can pick up those things, but that definitely does happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so who's the subject of your works now, if you're not doing the the self-portraiture, friends, family? Some of them are are friends and family, but I also have a few life drawing 
just life drawing models. And I've, I've done, I've done some online life drawing sessions because recently I haven't had the ability to actually go to physical groups and do drawings. And it's a little bit different, but I have used those people or their faces in my work. And then I also have some old sketches that recently I pulled up and then I reworked them. So they're kind of half from life drawing Mm -hmm. and half imaginary people. And so I'd love to circle back a bit now that we're kind of getting into the depths of your of your practice and sort of the, the meat and potatoes of it is how do all the different media that you use show up in these explorations? Do you think of them as, as different tools or when you conceive of an image, are you already seeing it in like the black and white binary of a wood engraving or in the softness of a litho or do you start with the medium and then go to the image when you're as fluent as you are in the different ways of image making? How do you decide what what goes to what? Hmm, that's a good question. I I think it's just based on feeling. Some things mm. feel like they would look good in a wood engraving and other things feel like they might look better on a slightly larger scale because a lot of it is scale as well. Wood mm. engraving is so miniature that certain images just feel like they need that kind of intimacy that you can get from something such small scale. Whereas other Mm -hmm. things feel like they might need a bit more space to breathe. And what about colors as well? You know, because you've got your Mokuhanga practice, which of course has that wonderful soft layering that Mokuhanga can work or Mokuhanga can offer. And then lino cut, which can have like a bolder color and then wood engraving lithography that tends to be a bit more subtle. Yes. (laughs) So that question makes it seem a bit like I'm kind of all over the place, which I guess I am. (laughs) That's not meant to be that way at all. I am am truly like nothing but reverent (laughs) in in your, yeah. Um, I guess I kind of am all over the place in the way that I want to do it all. I love Mm. printmaking. I love all different kinds of printmaking and I can't just pick one. That's really what it is. Like I, I love working with color. I love working in black and white and I wish I could somehow, sometimes I wish I could pick more of like one to fit Mm. into, but then I, I long for the other ones. I miss them. So recently I've really been focusing on the litho side of things, but I really miss relief print. So it's really hard just to pick one, but I guess I'm just <laughs> a big print nerd. So. Yes, and and in very good company, as as we all are, yeah. absolutely. So, but speaking of the litho, I feel like around lockdown period, I started to see some really wonderful videos from you of really successful kitchen litho, which has just been delightful to see. Was that something that you were interested in before we were all kind of locking ourselves inside? Or was that something that came out as as a necessity during shutdowns? So that was something that had been I had been aware of for quite a few years. So the artist who developed the technique, I might say her name wrong, but Emilie Azier, she's a French artist. I had seen her videos on YouTube 
you know, a decade ago when she was first doing it. And so it was in the back of my mind as like, oh, this is interesting. And I kind of forgot about it for, for many years. And I had been doing mostly an at-home practice for a long time after my master's, where I was doing mokuhanga or wood engraving or other kinds of relief printing. So it wasn't because of the lockdown in terms of losing access to a print studio, but it definitely was the lockdown in terms of losing access to any form of childcare and not having Mm. any time. Mm -hmm. So for me, relief printing, even though I had my studio set up, I just didn't have the time to put into it. So I decided I needed to try something different. And Kitchen Litho is a medium where at least each of the steps can be done very quickly. And I took it up not realizing that I would just fall in love with it as much as I did. So I've been doing a lot of Kitchen Litho in the past couple of years because it's what fits in with my schedule, but also it has really amazing potential for mark making from such simple materials. Yeah. Do you find that it's the mark making is distinct from plate or, or stone or just the sense that, cause it's, it's aluminum that you're draw like, like tinfoil essentially, right. That you're actually drawing on. Is that correct? Yes. I don't want to, I don't yes. want to mislead. Yes. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're drawing on the tinfoil and at least I've only seen the work in reproduction. So for me, it, 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 it is really impressive in terms of the quality of the line, but is there also actually something in the process that you feel like you're getting that you wouldn't get in the other branches of lithography? Uh, what you're getting that you wouldn't get in the other branches of litho is the ability to do it from home. <laughs> it's a lithograph at all, yeah. <laughs> so, where it, when you think about stone lithography and how much detail you can put into one layer, that's not possible on a piece of aluminum foil. Of course, it's not possible. But the things that you can do with aluminum foil still are beautiful and they still are mm-hmm. wonderful. And the fact that you don't need a press and you know you don't need the chemicals. Those are all things that are really amazing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, I think too, the images that you produce, they never seem though like they're lacking anything though. You never, I never see what you produce and think, oh, that would need more detail. Like it seems like you've really absorbed the limitations and the strengths of the medium and created images that are in harmony with the limitations and the strengths of the medium. And so I think that like, that's probably the key to making it satisfying and, and an effective form of image making, I would guess, would just be to, to understand what you can and can't do and lean into it. Definitely. That's exactly it. And that took a lot of trial and error to sort of push the limits to see, can I do this or can I do that? And once I figured mm-hmm. that out, keeping within what you can create with Kitchen Litho has led me to be really successful with printmaking with that medium. So just maybe for anyone listening at home who's just thinking, Kitchen Litho, what are they even talking about? (laughs) Do you have a uh, just like a quick kind of elevator overview of what you mean when you say Kitchen Litho? Yeah, it's an at-home, non-toxic version of lithography where you use aluminum foil as your plate 
and you're drawing with grease materials and then you etch the plate with Coca-Cola and then you print as you would a lithograph. It's so wild. Like yeah. I've, I've seen the videos that you've, you've put together doing it, but it, it still seems like, like magic. And I think, I think I even reposted one on the Hello Print Friend Instagram at one point. And some of the comments like were like a little suspicious. I don't know if you remember, but some people were like, they were like, I think that looks too detailed for what she's doing. Like there were people like weren't really believing what they were seeing. Like it's almost like you were that's that's your long game is a big, the big kitchen lithos cam. <laughs> like you've got the time and the inclination to just try and fool everyone. <laughs> but the outcomes are really impressive. Thank you. Yeah, I have had a few comments like that people sort of doubting what I'm doing, but like, I'm not trying to fool anyone. I'm really using aluminum foil. This is how I'm doing my printmaking. So, Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. That's just the nature of the internet is that there'll, there'll be someone out there somewhere trying to, trying to make it weird, of course. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't blame them because there are a lot of fake videos floating around. So yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It does make me, every time I, I see you do it with Coca-Cola, it always makes me feel a little bit weird about ever drinking Coca-Cola again. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, like you, I think you've seen videos probably in health class of Coca-Cola, like rotting teeth in a bowl and that kind of thing. But then there's like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's etching. All right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it, it, it again, talking about kind of the, the global perspective of, of having a, an art practice around the world, what's more global than Coca-Cola, right? Isn't it like the most recognized, like logo supposedly is the most recognized icon in the entire world is the Coca-Cola symbol or something like that? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. At least I you mean, can get it. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. I'll, I'll never have a problem with obtaining that kind of aluminum foil and Coca-Cola. You can find it right? anywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd love to hear you, you speak to a bit of your experience of being an artist and being someone who is traveling a lot and living in different places, which of course as we've spoken to, can be such a rich experience in terms of inspiration and just human experience. But then also looking at actually building a commercial art practice when you're moving a lot. Because I've found that a lot of people will they'll stay in one town and then they get the local shows and then the regional shows and then the state shows and they might be shown. And, and people people can kind of build that almost sort of geographically going out. But you're someone who I would guess you build connections in a city, but then you leave a city. So then you still have them. But I know I'm, it's not. I'm, this is like like the worst formed question. But I maybe I could say it something like, as an artistic nomad, what advice would you have for people who who do want to travel and build global connections and still get their work out there and get it to be seen and get shows and, and that sort of thing. Yes, that is very challenging. I will admit that when you are somewhere and you have real connection with people, that helps a lot. Because when I look back on most of my solo exhibitions that I've had were from those connections. 
Yeah. So leaving a place, it can be really hard to stay connected, especially for me. I, I spent about seven years in Tokyo and I did have quite a lot of connections with galleries there. And Japan is a place that really values that like person to person connection. And it's been really hard to actually keep those up since leaving. So that can be really challenging. Luckily, nowadays, there are things like on the internet apps where people can connect. And that's different. Yes. But sometimes those connections can also lead to real life things. So Mm. I have been active a lot, especially on Instagram which sometimes I I kind of feel like, oh, this isn't real life. It's just fake internet. But that those me posting those things have actually led to real connections and some exhibition opportunities. So you got to keep trying no matter what. So we, we do have these tools, which definitely can help. But having that sort of personal connection, I think is the number one, and that is very challenging. So if you can keep up with people, that's great. I'm not always the best at like keeping connected with people from places that I left. So it's hard. So even for me, I find it very challenging, especially the things like exhibiting and, and selling your work. Cause when you're not in a place where people already know you, it can be hard to find people to sell your work to. For one, like if you're not, I, not everyone has someone knocking on their door offering them an exhibition. Mm-hmm. Obviously, most people don't. I don't. So it can it can definitely be a challenge, but you got to put yourself out, put yourself out there no matter where you are and just try to build new connections and try to keep up the old ones. So I don't know how yeah. much specific advice I have. But. No, I think that's all really good because it, it, it speaks to an experience that I think people it, it's valuable for people to hear, even if they're not globe trotting, because it really is, as you say, like the real significant things that often happen, like solo exhibitions or that sort of thing that does happen through the personal connections that people have. And I think that that is good to hear. And also probably a little bit bittersweet for everyone, because I think that, no one really knows how to do that. You know, no one really, like, no one really knows how do you go and create a genuine connection with, honestly, like someone who's a gatekeeper. Because, I mean, that's what gallerists are, right? That's what museum curators are. They're people who decide what gets seen. And, and I think that there are people who do make it kind of a science in the art world and are very precise about it. And they sort of flourish from it. But, that's never, at least speaking personally, like that's never been me. Like I don't, I can't be like, oh, that's the decision maker in the room. Like, let me go wow them. Like, ew, no. Like I can't, I can't do that, you know? And, and so that question that people have of like, of how do you get work seen? How do you get exhibitions? You know, of course is a huge one. And I think the end result or the end answer is that you actually do have very little control over it, which is kind of bittersweet. It's kind of like good news because, hey, I don't have a lot of control over it, but it's also sort of bad news because you don't have a lot of control over it. So yeah, it's it's good to hear, I think, 
wherever you are in the world because it's it's a fact of this strange corner of being a professional that we've all somehow chosen to be in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you ever done like teaching at all as a way to, I don't know, like make more connections or sort of like get more involved in art making and, and art spreading the good word of printmaking? Yes, I have done quite a bit of mm -hmm. small group teaching. So recently I've actually done some online classes, which has been mm -hmm. sort of a new thing for me doing it online, but it's been fun to actually connect with people all around the world that way. I also sometimes teach children's printmaking classes or classes for people who are trying printmaking for the first time. So I definitely enjoy that as well, just like people who have never done a print before in their life. So I I do find that teaching can be a great way to connect with people that you would otherwise not get the chance to meet as well. Mm. So Yeah, because I this is like me trying to get you to sh shamelessly plug oh. your kitchen with our classes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> This is, but no, because I, I, I do know that people have just responded so much to that, and it is so cool. And I remember when I was doing a little research on you that you've got you do do online kitchen litho. Yes, I do some online Zoom classes for kitchen litho, just with small groups of people from anywhere in the world. And when I have time, I put them up on my website. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think I I really think that's wonderful because I I've got the the Hello Print Friend Instagram which has a sort of a broad enough following base that I I get messages from everywhere in the world and sometimes it's people who are like living somewhere where there really is maybe not a lithostone in the whole country. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, this is amazing. How do I do this? You know, a lot of times, like, I don't, I don't know what to tell them, but that, that accessibility, as you say, of, of aluminum and Coca-Cola, like that's like, that's such a cool, I think, entry point for people who don't live in a place or don't have access to the university structures that we were privileged enough to have access to, you know, that it's like, you can go there and here is a whole print shop and here's all the people you can ask questions to. And it really seems like such a positive outcome of the internet and social media, because there's a lot of non-positive outcomes from all of it, that maybe there is something that people kind of anywhere could, if you've got, if you've got the time and, and, a little bit of disposable income, you can try lithography. I think that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It definitely is. There's, I, I will say there are some challenges because, of course, mm. when you're teaching something like art through Zoom, there's certain things that just you can't really get across, especially with printmaking, like the amount of water to have in your sponge or the, oh, the amount right. of ink. Those things are challenging. But that's the kind of thing that at least you can get an idea. And then if you put in the practice yourself after, you can really right. get a good handle on it. But yeah, I know like there's the, the trial and error. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of trial and error that goes after these sort of classes. Mm -hmm. But it is still amazing to think that at one time you could have people from three different continents in one class. So, you know, all together. Yeah. Like, that's really cool. So. That's lovely. Yeah. Very, very cool. 
Well, is there anything that particularly that you're looking forward to? Anything you want to plug? Anything on the horizon besides moving to the States? We'll be very happy to have you <laughs> stateside in a little while. But beyond that, anything you'd like to give a shout out to? Well, I am currently getting some work together for a group exhibition in Seoul. So I'm really looking forward to that later this year. And I am working towards having more time to focus on my career and hopefully Mm -hmm. get an online shop started up so I can be more active in selling work. That's the goal for maybe this year, maybe next year, but that's what I'm working towards. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And then where can people find you and follow you and see what you do out there on the internet? I am very active on Instagram. So if you look my name up at Valerie Sipos, probably best just for you to look at the spelling in the podcast title. (laughs) And then also I have my website, www.valeriesipos.com. And I do also post some longer videos to YouTube, which are some of them extended experiments in Kitchen Litho. So if that kind of thing interests you, you can find me there. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. And I've just always been so intrigued with your practice. So this was a real treat to hear more about it and your experience. And thank you for doing what you do out there. It's always, always good to see your work. So thank you so much, Valerie. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week. My guest will be Ina Arawi. We talk about growing up on a small back-to-land community in northern New Zealand, her dramatic escape from Italy on one of the last flights out of the country during the early days of the pandemic, the incredible printmaking festival she's founded and runs called Printopia, how Auckland doesn't have an open access printmaking studio, and what she's planning on doing about it. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.